Yeah. It can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace, at least. In the better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show, Community Spread. I'm your host, Kevin Lundell. And on the pod today, we have. Alicia and Camille Washington, and they are the founders and owners of a nonprofit theater company called Good Company Theater. And I've been really wanting to have this conversation with them because, you know, it's actually been something I've been thinking about. We know that for years, people of color have been underrepresented in the arts, specifically in Hollywood. And when we think about the movies and the TV shows we watch and how they have been dominated by white faces. And when there is a black face or a person of color in these, in these movies, they're often portrayed as uh, vil- villains or criminals or uh, you know somebody that's not the hero of the show. And this has started to change recently. You know, I was on a Zoom call with my family the other day, and uh, you know, just like most families do, we get together and we talk about uh, social injustices. So if you're wondering where uh, some of this comes from, it comes from the people who I care about and and love most dearly. Uh, These are sort of the conversations that we end up having uh, on our weekly Zoom calls. But my sister was talking about how she has a friend whose son is trying to make it in Hollywood and how it's gotten to be kind of hard for him because Hollywood is actually looking for more people of color to play the roles in in their shows. And this is really important. Because we're starting to get that sort of diversity coming through our TV. And, and that matters. That kind of representation really matters. But what it also does is it makes it harder for that white person to get that role. Not It doesn't make it unequally harder. Let's not get this wrong here, right? Because we know that still probably uh, people of color are underrepresented in, in Hollywood. But it's harder than it was five years ago for that white person to go to Hollywood and to make it. And I've been thinking a lot about this and about make America great again. You know, that slogan rang to a lot of people, a frightening number of people, but I think it is, and I've been thinking so much about it, but I think it is because many people are feeling a sense of loss, a sense that, that, the world is changing in a way that makes it more difficult for them, more difficult for their children. Because let's be honest, if the world is becoming more equal and people of color are going to have more opportunity in the future, it means that my children don't have those advantages that their skin color gives them, that their skin color gave me. And that's more fair, equitable, and just society, but it also means a decrease and that sort of advantage that we once had. Now, this is not unfair or unjust. This is the balance and fairness coming to pass. But when that comes to pass, it's going to be met with pushback. And that's a that's a hard thing for people to feel. I think it's why we saw the rise of Donald Trump. We know that he ran specifically on these racial grievances and he came out of that down that golden elevator and called Mexicans rapists and you know criminals and he ran this campaign specifically to speak to white grievance and it's something that rang 
for a lot of people to be something that they wanted to preserve. And it's, so it's going to be hard. What I'm saying here is that it's going to be hard for us to reach more fair, equitable, and just society because there's going to be pushback because it's going to get hard for some people, for the white majority. It's going to become a little bit harder because they're not going to have that same sort of advantage that they once had. And guess what? We got to sit with that. And that's got to be, you got to look at that as a good thing. And I think that Hollywood is actually a good microcosm for what's happening in this country. Yeah, guess what? People of color are beginning to receive more chances. And that means it's more difficult for white people. That's a good thing. And so this will give us an opportunity as we listen to this conversation with Alicia and Camille to talk to somebody who grew up with those disadvantages, trying to make it in theater and in the arts and being told that she didn't have the right skin color or the right face for that particular role. So, you know, I think this can give us an opportunity to open our eyes, to embrace the difficulty that is not difficulty, that is just more fair. But I think it's something we need to speak to because if we don't speak to that loss that people are feeling, people are genuinely feeling a loss, that is what Donald Trump was able to tap into. And if we don't speak to it, if we pretend it doesn't exist, then we can't make progress because people are feeling a genuine loss. But it's not because the world is somehow becoming unfair and unstacked in their, in their favor. Let's be clear about that, right? It is becoming slightly more fair. And that's a good thing. So let that sink in as you listen to this conversation with Alicia and Camille and get the opportunity to learn from it. They have taken the opportunity to not only embrace and the, the change that's happening, but try to bring that to Ogden, try to bring that diversity. They're the only, it's the only black owned theater in all of Utah. And they are trying to bring that diversity to Utah. So get out there, uh, you know, when they're back doing shows after COVID, please give give uh, them your business. Go see their shows. They do awesome work. I've had the opportunity to be there. So I hope you really enjoy this conversation as much as I do. Well, hey, I am so excited to have Alicia and Camille on today. Uh, they are the owners of Good Company Theater uh, here in Ogden. Uh, welcome to the show, Alicia. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And Camille, welcome. Thank you. I am also pleased to be here. You know, I had the pleasure of going to my first drag show ever at Good Company Theater. And it was at eye-opening experience. I was fresh off of um, kind of transitioning out of Mormonism. You know, if I'm totally honest, I probably had like my third or fourth drink ever at Good Company Theater during the drag show. <laughs> and we had the best time. I just, we went from laughing our asses off, just having just like an incredible time to like crying real emotional tears during these really intense emotional part of the show and I wanted to hear you guys talk about that set and that that show 
a little bit, mainly for myself, because I wanted to relive it because it was such an impactful night for me. Yeah, I mean, we appreciate the feedback, um, all feedback, but um, especially when it's a glowing uh, report like that. Uh, so that show uh, in particular, that drag show was performed in 2016, uh, June of 2016. And uh, <laughs> the theme of that drag show was called Camp Tuckaway. <laughs> love it love it i remember it now it's bringing back great memories <laughs> yes and so all the girls were going to summer camp and uh you know something that was unique about our drag shows at, at the time which i think is catching on more and more um as drag has captured and come into um, american culture in a way that i did never anticipate um is our queens they sang live and that's not typical uh, of drag shows, or at least the history of drag shows, where um, the girls would typically perform to a track and lip, lip sync. I didn't know that. I didn't. I didn't know that. And so this was this was a little bit unique to have uh, the queens singing live, and they did an amazing job. Amazing job, Camille. Can you speak to that moment when we transitioned to like? I mean, they're getting the audience involved. It's super fun and high energy to this really intense number um that there was not a dry eye in the house after right uh so this was a little later in the show and uh carl who has since left for pittsburgh he doesn't live in ogden anymore he lives in pennsylvania uh, he had he brought out kind of a, a vanity that he would sit in front of it was open so the audience could see him and he would be in full drag and through the performance. Alicia, I don't know if you know the song you have it pulled up. Yeah, it's called What Makes a Man. What Makes a Man. He would slowly um, remove all of his drag so that at the end of the performance, he would be standing there kind of spent after this really dramatic um, song story about how, uh, how it was for him and coming to terms with his gayness and being proud of what he does as a drag queen. And it was just, it was just really moving. Um, especially like you said, it, it, you know, everyone, it was like such a high, everyone is having such a rambunctious good time. And then it was, it was just such a, it was such a really sobering moment. Um, especially at that time, which was just really, really soon after uh, the tragedy in uh, Orlando, the Pulse nightclub shootings, uh, which until the Las Vegas shootings was the biggest mass uh, murder in U.S. history. And so it was just really, it was a palpable emotional space. And, I, and that performance really captured that energy that I think, and that sentiment that everyone was feeling at the time. It absolutely did. And I wanted you guys to retell that story because I remember the emotion of it so vividly and I, I remember less of the number and I didn't remember the context either um, that it was shortly after after following that shooting. And so it definitely was, I know we were all thinking about that in that moment and just how just how intense that, that really was. Uh, Alicia, as you guys were preparing that number, how was... How was the cat the the queens ever? How was everybody feeling about that that number and that night as you were preparing for that show? 
Yeah. So we gave the Queens full ownership of the content that they wanted to perform. Um, So they selected their songs that they wanted to perform. Some of them were able to mix their own tracks. I mean, just an incredibly talented group of people. And so as they let me know their two songs that they wanted to perform, Camille and I did a mashup of some songs for like some chorus or group numbers. And all of it was really poignant, right? Because it's this celebration of this amazing art form, which is drag. And so, but also underneath all of that, we have to remember their people. Like it's it's so much spectacle. It's so much makeup. It's so much hairspray. <laughs> but really watching that moment of transformation and watching the entire cast particularly support Carl, um, stage name is Sabrina, in this moment is is exactly what I expected them to do because those are the people that they are. Uh, That's who the cast is. That's exactly what I expected the community to do, to offer up nothing less than full support and honor that particular moment in the show. Well, I tell you what, having experienced it, Carl, everyone around, like it 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 was a moving and touching moment for myself. Tell me what you are about with Good Company Theater and what has brought you to want to start a theater. How long have you been here and and what's brought you to the theater? We have been around for eight years. We are recently into our ninth year and we are three years into our current location, which is over on 24th Street and Wall Avenue in Ogden. And the short version of what made me want to start a theater company is I was tired of seeing people who didn't look like me being represented on stage and also tired of stories, of of diverse stories not being told, particularly in the Utah market. And I wanted to be the one to determine those stories and to determine what we brought into our community and also to help get more diversity onto a stage, um, into theater. So, Our mission statement is to develop and promote high-quality, eclectic theatrical productions, forging new relationships between audiences, spaces, and performers in the process. Pared down, we want to make sure theater is accessible and affordable. And then, too, uh, uh, this is Camille. Sorry, I'll just add on to that, you know, just kind of thinking about drag show and its evolution really what good company is about is allowing that space, right? Someone, you know, in this case, it was uh, Nick Morris who co-owns Cafe Merc with his husband, um, Lance Smith. He came and said, I have this idea about a drag show that we sing live. And we were like, yes, let's go for it. So that was the second of three that we did with them. And that's really kind of the energy and the spirit that good company theater is about and has kind of grown we've grown because we have a bigger space now but I feel like we've grown into that more which is which is allowing a space for experimenting and bringing in different people and voices and ideas and treating them seriously and giving them a platform uh and yeah so it's it's been it's been a journey that's actually why I really wanted to have you two on was because at uh, the podcast community spread, what we're really trying to do is help people step outside step outside of their own learned experience. I've found that 
change happens when you can step outside of, of your own learned experience and really feel and understand someone else's experience. And it sounds like that's exactly what you guys are trying to do on a much larger scale and, and on stage. And that, that moment for me, the whole uh, drag show experience did exactly that for this white dude transitioning out of Mormonism. <laughs> um, it did exactly that for me. So uh, really incredible for to, to, to actually feel that and that you, you are accomplishing exactly what you're trying to do for, you know, this 30 well, something white dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is Camille again. I think that part of a sense of community comes out of what Alicia had been experiencing or had some experiences she'd had in theater where she felt distanced or like there wasn't a sense of community or there wasn't a community for people of color or black women or, or just, it just, it came, it was when she first started mentioning this, that was such a part of it is it was wanting to start a theater was to feel a sense of togetherness and to try to really capture that magic, which is, which in its essence is a, is a totally theater based experience. A group of people come together and watch another group of people who have created something. And there is an exchange of kind of this energy and it is like a magic. It's like a theater magic. I'm not from the theater world by trade and being in it this long now, I can totally recognize that energy. And I, and it's something that we work hard at and that it takes, it, ta it, it took thinking about from the beginning to really develop. Absolutely. Well, I think uh, Alicia, you are kind of in the theater world, like from, by trade, right? Like, so tell me a little bit about your background. Let's go back and tell me about your background and how you got into the arts and theater. Yeah, I think it it, it is uh, it lines up with just how we were raised in our household, where there was a different importance placed on the arts in by our parents, uh, by our mom, who really was in college. She did a lot of ceramics, um, did a lot of like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like textiles, like she can crochet, she can knit, she can sew. And then our dad was really into music, um, is into music, I should say, and uh, wrote a book of poetry that he, he self-published. So I really like what Camille set, has said in the past where the arts were recognized in our home, but as secondary to some type of traditional trade. So it was always, you get to do the arts, but you have to have some type of professional trade. And it was like, okay, this is doable. And then throughout the years, we would be involved in our church pageants, uh, like Easter pageants or Christmas shows. And mom would make all the costumes and we'd <laughs> work on the sets and we'd be in choir. So we always had a strong background in the arts. It was really in when Camille and I started to get later into elementary school and junior high that we started to divide our interests within the arts. She went more on the visual path as much and as where I did you to. where did you grow up? Where did you grow up? We grew up in Layton. Layton, okay. Yep. And Layton. so she said she said it proper. It's Layton. Layton. I Layton by the mountains. Layton by the mountains. <laughs> and I'll apologize for all of the true Utahns that just rolled their eyes at me while they were listening <laughs> to this because I said Layton. I'll correct it. So we were born, we were raised in Layton. <laughs> Perfect. Nailed it. <laughs> and Camille went into the musical and visual arts path. And I 
really tripped into the, the theater world, to be honest. Um, <laughs> the number one story is, you know, my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Lusk, cast me as Queen of Hearts, uh, which I wasn't expecting. And then that side of me kind of went dormant. And then it wasn't until junior high when I saw a flyer, um, an audition notice for the musical Oklahoma, that I went home and said to mom and Camille, I want to audition for this. And they were very surprised. <laughs> but I went in, I auditioned, and I received uh, a leading role. I was Aunt Eller in the musical Oklahoma in seventh grade. Wow. Which a seventh grader wow. getting cast as the lead, hair flip, hair toss. Yeah. Oh, that. I will say from that moment, it became very clear how closed off theater was to people of color. Because even in the seventh grade, there was a group of parents who approached the director of the musical um, and asked how a mulatto could could play Aunt Eller in no. <laughs> in, uh, in Oklahoma. You heard it right, have, and possibly have a white niece. So it was very clear from the beginning, despite. Seventh grade Alicia, knowing that theater would be her entire life, that it was a place where I wasn't welcomed. How did you experience that more going forward? I mean, we know, like, I know that Black folks are definitely underrepresented underrepresented on TV, in theater, you know, everywhere. As you're, you know, growing up in theater, and how are you experiencing that as you're, you know, trying to compete with white faces of the same or lesser talent to try to get these roles. What, what was that like? You know, uh, to kind of put a button on that, on the seventh grade story, I have to say I've always had strong advocates, strong people in my corner. Mrs. Knighton, who is the director, she stood up for me in a very significant way and really offered me support in ways that became so much more apparent as I've gotten older. Like when I graduate, when, Ninth grade, my last year performing, she gave me a CD of a very well-known musical theater artist, uh, actress. Her name is Audra McDonald. But that was the first time, she's Black, I should say. That was the first time I've seen someone who looked like me that had gone to Juilliard, that was on Broadway, that was winning Tonys. So, right, these little breadcrumbs along the way of encouragement really set me up for success in a monumental way. And good for her for having that vision and knowing that we're, when we are uh, an audience to a show that we are suspending our disbelief all of the time and it doesn't matter. Exactly. <laughs> and for her to have that vision and support you in that way uh, was probably, you know, really a, a foundational moment for you. And I always, if I, if I'm being entirely honest, I knew my worth, I knew my worth on stage and I knew I, I belonged there. And I knew I would have to try 10 times harder, especially when I would go out to auditions that were traditionally and still are cast for um, as with white with white actors. And knowing that I, I killed my audition, I did so well, walked out of there, but knowing that I wasn't the right race and I wasn't the right body type. But I, you know, I knew I could do it. And so, but along the way, I've had people for lack of a better phrase, take a chance on me, that they've seen the talent and they've been the ones to put up the fight for me. 
in those production rooms or with those production teams that were hesitant to cast me or to trust the director's vision in casting me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's something you've, you know, I hadn't thought a lot about until recently is, is an actor and, and going through that, you know, I even had an experience. I mean, this is going to sound like very cliche and like, uh, but like when, when Hamilton comes out and, and I went to Hamilton, uh, you know, in the theater and like, like I wasn't quite prepared. Like all of a sudden they come out and like Thomas Jefferson is black and, and, and it's awesome, you know? And it was just this, this experience. I couldn't really explain after other than it was just an experience. And do you feel, did, did that change the the industry some i mean it did for me it allowed me to change some of my thoughts about what is considered a traditional traditional role and how we could really branch out from from here in ways we hadn't earlier envisioned yeah i think that part of what is great about hamilton is that it proved that um a role is what you bring to it and and that also theater is like you said about a certain level of suspension of disbelief that it is creating its own universe in that theater on that stage and that it, if it's effective in its storytelling and 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 whatever it allows you to see to to get more out of it by those decisions by a lighting cue by a decision to cast a certain person by the way that a certain historical character may be rapping in the you know you know doing some hip hop it's just that is that is what i think it opened more people's eyes to is that theater is this bigger space that we can all embody in a different way than than some of the limitations that are outside of just in regular world. Well, I think more directly, it spoke to the people that can afford those tickets, like not to like throw any shade out there, but I mean, theater is expensive. And when you get into the more professional productions, it's going to cost $50. It's going to cost $125. If you want to go see Hamilton and you can buy a $500 ticket, you're going to do that. Typically, the people who have access to those funds are white people. And so that's part of the disruption or really like the rupture that happened that Hamilton caused within the theater realm is you have these blue hairs going to see a cast of people of color that are rapping about Alexander Hamilton. I mean, he just completely set a new precedence and actually built on some things that other playwrights and librettists were doing along the along the way. Like if you go back a little bit, Lin-Manuel had a very successful show called In the Heights, and he built off of that. If you go before that, you have Jonathan Larson who wrote Rent. So we have these people that are navigating and finding people and finding ways to get into like work through the cracks of what it costs to get to Broadway or to get a producer, a substantial producer who are typically white to look at your show, to produce it in mass. Yeah. Alicia, as you are growing up in in theater and having these experiences like you did with Oklahoma and trying to feel like you go into an audition and you kill it, 
um, as you put it in your words, didn't have the right skin color or the right body type. Was some of that the impetus for you to uh, want to start this theater where you're, you're trying to bring diversity and these experiences to Ogden? Oh, 100%. <laughs> there's no doubt. There, there's absolutely no doubt. It's a direct response to the treatment that I received in lo with local theater companies, community and professional. And then also a really cathartic moment of when I thought, and I think most artists do, especially musical theater actors, uh, they wanna work their way back to Broadway. And so I was on this really beautiful journey, auditioning around the country. And I ended up at two very significant auditions where I looked around me and it was typed down to eight people in the room and we all looked the same. And it was one of the most beautiful and important moments that I had in seeing myself and how I fit into the theater world, into the theatrical world and realizing my skill set would be better served behind the table, so to speak. So on the production side of things and really investing in wanting to see every aspect of a show go up from costumes to casting to rehearsals. And so it was in that moment of looking to my left and my right and seeing these talented, um, ambitious actresses and realizing I got, I got some more work to do so, you know, back in Ogden, Utah. And I also had seen the success of a professional theater company in Ogden, Ogden. Utah Musical Theater. Yeah. Utah Musical Theater, thank you. That was uh, had a significant professional run at uh, the Egyptian down on Washington. So I knew theater could thrive here. And which is also why I wanted to keep it here in Ogden, even though a lot of people said, why Ogden? Don't keep it in Ogden, it'll never make it. I saw the community in a different way. And I saw an opportunity in a different way. So yeah, so being rejected all those times or being told so many times in a dressing room that they don't have my size or they don't know what to do with my hair really gave me fuel for the fire to open my own theater company. And how did it come to life? Tell me about it. Tell me about how it came to life. Your your first show, your first couple of shows. Tell, tell me about that experience. Camille, you go. Oh, I go. Okay. So I was... Um, <laughs> I had been living elsewhere, kind of pursuing a career in um, the museum, visual arts, curatorial museum world. And uh, I got dumped in the recession in 2011, just had been applying for jobs for over a year, did all the interview types in person over Skype. Skype was a thing back then and uh, <laughs> flying and do it, you know, just all kinds of interviews, couldn't get a job. So I came back here and Alicia had been for a while talking about, well, I want to do kind of like a theater. It's just like a small theater thing in Ogden, like with my friends, because that they had kind of, she had a group of theater people, her friends that they had been talking about a theater company, but then it had kind of evolved for her into starting a theater. And at that time, pop-up stuff was really popular. And so I was like, we were like, okay, we could try to do some pop-up theater. And then in 2012, um, it really- I don't know what pop-up theater is. Tell me what's pop-up theater. Well, uh, so pop-up theater would be like a, a theater. So a good company theater was just a troupe of actors or a troupe of people. And then you find a place to do the theater. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. Like a empty, like, because Ogden is 
has like it's perennially, you know, halfway rented. So there's always right. like, <laughs> there's like <laughs> always a storefront. There's always a garage somewhere. There's always some place that you could do something, right? Like, so let's be honest <laughs> sure. about Ogden. It's what it is. And and so it was like, and we were just really energized by this idea. And it just had never occurred to, I don't think to you, Alicia, until you started looking at spaces that there could actually be a theater, not just a theater company, but a theater. And so then in 2012, I think Alicia should tell like, how she found the space that you saw Dragon. Yes. Our first day. Yeah. So um, the one thing, you know, with with uh, the site-specific theater um, or the oh, pop-up theater. <laughs> site-specific um, is more You know, it was, in my experience uh, with these other startup theater companies in Salt Lake when I was still performing, when I was still on stage, we never had a home base. We never had a place where we could rehearse, we were always trying to rent out space in churches or at libraries or in people's homes, which was great, but it was just so disruptive to the process of trying to like sink your teeth into something or having a safe space to <laughs> maybe uh, have a really crappy rehearsal, but also have those really joy joyful moments. And so it was really important to me to just find a space where we could have a rehearsal, have rehearsals, that be our, our home, but then perform around Ogden. Like we were, we were thinking we could perform at Union Station, we could perform at the Ben Lomond. Um, and then it really started this whole kind of Goldilocks moment of finding the right space. And our first location, as we were looking around, each space just wasn't right. And there was this one spot that was just opened that I thought, it's on 25th Street, it's gonna be too much. We already don't have money and I don't wanna like make us go like, into the red even more. And so it, it just kept being available and available for rent. And we'd go and look at all these places. I mean, we were looking at old mechanic shops, like oil change stations, where it's like, yeah, we can pop up the garage doors. Like it was eight years ago. So we had a hell of a lot more energy. <laughs> <than we have>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but finally I'm like, Camille, I'm just going to call. I'm going to call and I'm just going to check it out. And I met the landlord, uh, George Whiting Sr., um, who has since passed on, but he met me at the top of the stairs and we walked in and I'm like, this is it. This is where we can not only rehearse shows, but where we can uh, produce and mount our shows. This is our home. And what was also really serendipitous is George and his wife, they attended Salt Lake Acting Company Productions. So they were already invested in the arts. So awesome. it was less of a hard sell when I'm like, hey, I want to produce shows here, like theater, like plays and musicals. So he really gave us a leg up in, as far as like opportunity and space and understanding and uplifting the vision. And so our first space is 1,500 square feet, uh, 260 25th Street. And if you know it by heart, it is right above Jack and Jill's. Oh yeah, we know you know that spot if you've ever walked down Twenty Fifth Street. <laughs> so what a great! Like, I'm telling you, that's like awesome now because you can like you like anybody's like, where is this place? Like above Jack and Jill's, everybody's like, oh yeah, know right where that is. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And honestly, being so many again, so many things lined up for us from um, George to I mean, the the owners of Jack and Jill are so gracious. So we had a great relationship. It was just meant to be it was just 
a home for us. And really that gave us an opportunity to just take off. And it created this really cool niche that it was like, yeah, the performance space was maybe 800 square feet. So we comfortably and safely and according to all the fire code standards sat <laughs> 50 people in that space. It was incredible. I think that was part of the amazing experience when I got to go there was just like, just how tight it was and that you were so close to the, to the actors and you were just like, it was, it was really, really a neat experience. Tell me about some of the other shows that you did that are really representative uh, of, of this idea and this mission that you have, Camille. Tell me what, how you produce those and, and um, so people can really understand what, what Good Company is about. Right. So uh, what that first space was small and intimate and we did probably some really audacious shows. Uh, for example, that first season, it ended in December of 2013. Uh, we did a play by August Wilson, who is maybe the most famous African-American playwright. Uh, and it's it's called Fences. Uh, there was recently a Denzel Washington movie adaptation of of the play. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> and we did that. And it's I mean you're supposed to be in kind of like an alley in like a back alley in Pittsburgh, and there's supposed to be a tree, and the, and you're supposed to this and the main character is kind of a failed baseball player, and he's supposed to be like trying to swing at this this uh, ball hanging from the tree. And imagine that in this teeny, teeny, like we built like a teeny, teeny, teeny house. No tree, you had to imagine the tree. And it was seven people in the show. Was it seven, Alicia? Yeah, and that, I mean, it, it just was, it was like our our last hurrah. Like we thought if we cannot afford to do any more shows, this is the show. But we felt it was an important show to do to kind of hint at the kind of work we were interested in and producing shows with, it was a predominantly black cast. In fact, it was all black people. Um, and awesome. yeah, which is no small feat for a small, like first year theater company above a sex shop on 25th street in Ogden. You know, like that's, that's like a, yes. that's a stretch, you know? So, <laughs> so, um, awesome. so, and so then we kind of built from there. So we, um, we've done a few big, like I would say big-ish musicals for that space. But then when we moved to our new space, uh, which is probably close to three times as big, just the just the performance space itself, uh, we still wanted to keep that kind of intimate energy. We seat about 72, 70, yeah, I'd say like 70 is our max in there. And it's still a matter of trying to kind of um, strip down those barriers that, that exist in a more formal theater setting, right? Where the performers are on a stage, they're elevated, and then the audience kind of sits in the dark and it, they just face this thing happening. And what we do is try to envelop audiences and performers in this kind of closeness so that we call attention to that, that energy, like you felt, right? That right. you can really only feel in that small kind of, at, you know, for a drag show, it feels like it's kind of like a club energy, like a nightclub energy. Definitely. But that is a, that's what we have tried to do. So Fences was a good example. Um, I think in our new space, 
Carolina Change was another kind of big, it was a big, it's a Broadway musical, uh, about 14 to 15 people in it and a small live uh, orchestra. There were two people in our pit orchestra who performed the music and it was, it was performed in the round. So the audience sat in a kind of in a, almost in a full circle around the stage. And it was just kind of breathtaking because it's this big, almost it's kind of like a operetta like it feels like it just is sung through the whole thing so you don't get a break there isn't much just spoken dialogue and once the music starts and you're in this more intimate space it just kind of sweeps you up into the story and that's what we're trying to do is kind of keep that tight energy and make it feel like a space you can think or feel open or maybe you haven't seen a show and you don't feel intimidated by the space and so you guys you guys did it like you did the thing, like you went through, I, I can't, I, I mean, having like opened a business from scratch, I opened a gym, a CrossFit gym from scratch and just like, you know, that experience of like looking for space and like stepping out into the unknown and just like, I have no idea if this thing's going to make it and then see it to start to th- thrive and start to build a community, which is exactly what you've done. And uh, it, this is the only black owned theater in Utah. Is that right? Yep. So it is. like you guys, you guys did, you guys did the thing <laughs> and it's it built and you've, you've built, you moved into a bigger space and it's happening. And then this year comes and COVID happens. <laughs> what has it been like? this year for you? Alicia, go. (laughs) Quiet. It's been very quiet. Uh, You know, I will say out the gate, like the community at large showed up for us and showed support and really showed up in a very significant like financial way that we didn't call attention to um, that was, is, is still really special and always, always thankful for that that people uh, made that commitment, showed that commitment. Um, And, you know, also people around the country. So that was, that was really, really significant. But, you know, we were supposed to open a show a week. Well, really, we, how am I trying to phrase this? We were about five days out from opening a show and then the national shutdown happened. So that whole production is just on ice. And we're hoping to remount it basically a year from now. But when it comes to producing, because our space is so intimate, we've just been dark. We just haven't been producing um, because Camille and I, we, we run it. We do everything. It's just we decided it's not safe. And I mean, scientifically proven, it's not safe. So it's it's been a lot of time to figure things out uh, moving forward, uh, how to move to a virtual uh, platform that falls in line with our mission statement and look forward to hopefully this time next year when we, when we can produce indoors again safely. Yeah, we, we actually were able to produce two, we'll say, pandemic-friendly productions. <laughs> I don't know. What do words mean in this time? Uh, <laughs> but uh, so we did two outdoor um, productions. One was four weekends in August. It was called Window Seat Sessions. We have a studio next door to the theater that has big uh, windows that face wall. 
avenue. And so we sat five seats out there and then allowed a single performer or a duo to be inside the studio. And we piped the sound out so that everyone could kind of be safe and distanced, but still experience performance. It's actually a thing. It's called, yeah, it's actually a thing. Yeah. It's called a a micro audiences and micro performances. Uh, And then we did a parking lot show. So we have a parking lot behind the building that we have access to. And we did uh, a kind of a musical satire um, where we seated approximately 50 people um, spread out in the parking lot. And then we had uh, five or six performers. Am I right, Alicia? Who were six, who were distanced and had their own acting areas. And we had a live DJ, DJ Battleship, who, who was spinning the music and he had his own area. And so we kept it really distanced. We did that in September into the first week of October. And then that's as far as we could go with kind of the outdoor thing before weather was too cold. Alicia, what did that feel like as, you know, for me, it was like, you're, you're jamming, like you're, you're rolling and and you're producing and, and everything's happening. And you feel like, for me, I felt kind of a little bit bulletproof. Like I got a business that's kind of running and I feel pretty good about it and things are rolling. And then all of a sudden something hits you that, I mean, you just, never could have foreseen, never could have thought coming. What was, what did that feel like to feel your dream, your dream kind of like go, go quiet as you put it? Yeah. Um, I, I think I'm still kind of processing that because, uh, so much of my identity is rooted in, in, in good company and also, uh, the fellowship and the interaction that I have with mounting a production, talking to the directors, the cast thinking about it, that it really made me realize in a good way, how much it's a part of my life, but also how much I am isolated without it. Like uh, outside of like health things, of course, you know, with the pandemic that that really has become my world and I wanted it to. Um, So in that regard, I'm really proud of it that I, and I'm, I'm very privileged that I get to do that. But it really, I don't, I don't know, because it's still ongoing for us because we're still dark. I still go down and work in my office at the theater and no one else is in there and it's just a dark space, you know, and I go and organize costumes or props and it's just very quiet, um, very quiet. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been hard. It's been really hard. It's been hard for a lot of people in very, very significant ways that um, I don't think any of us will forget. But yeah, it's it's definitely let me know how much of a priority uh, good company is in my life and really to our community. I'll keep going back to that because we've had people reach out to make sure that we're okay, that we're going to see the other side of this. So there's been a lot of like unifying aspects in that regard that um, have been really reassuring and comforting <laughs> as as we stay dark for the next handful of months. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask next is what what does that year, the next year look like for you? And is Good Company going to be make it through the other side? And how can we help? How can uh, maybe a listener out there help 
good company because we absolutely need what you guys are giving and providing and the community you're building here in Ogden. Yes, we'll make it through. I am a Taurus. I don't give up. So, and it's also been like very hard all along. This has not been simple. It's been very expensive, very trying. It's been extremely difficult. Um, when we moved spaces, like we had just been reflecting on this, we moved from our, sm- our small sp- smaller space to our new space that we're in now. It was like starting over. We had to relearn everything. And, and that was in many ways more difficult because we had a little bit of knowledge. When you just start something, you don't know anything. You don't know how, to, how you're going to fail. Yeah. Now we have, yeah. now we have a big bag of failures that we carry around with us <laughs> that we're always like, Oh, look, it could always be that, you know? <laughs> so now I, I just feel like, yes, we'll make it through, but the way that people can support us would be to constantly be thinking about us. Um, we have a donation link on our page, um, but it just feels it feels like there are so many other things that should take priority. I think probably the biggest, simplest thing people could do is wear a mask so that this thing ends so that we can get back inside and do theater. Because the sooner this is over, all of us can just go back to doing what we want to do. And um, we can be, so we can do this safely for everybody. So that would be a, that would be a huge help to all the, the indoor activities providers like theaters and gyms and um it would just help if people would wear a mask yes wear a mask socially (laughs) distance where you can please people um i'm curious you know there are other theaters that are doing some things Uh, how do you guys how do you feel about that and what what is it like as you watch others try to do some uh, uh, some theater and when you have made the decision not to? Alicia, uh, I'll I'll speak a little. <laughs> Sorry, uh, this ahead, is Camille. I'll speak a little bit on this. So I <laughs> I work for Onstage Ogden, which is a classical music presenter, and we um, we bring Utah Symphony to Ogden. Usually, that's at the Browning Center. That's where our big concerts happen. And those are, you know, like hundreds of people, over a thousand people. And so it's been a, it's been a struggle for us. But in the last, since the fall, we have had a couple of smaller concerts in the Royal Room at the Monarch. And those have been about 50 people or less, totally distanced with small ensembles. And that, is, it was a really tricky for us. But I think it's, I think... First of all, we have followed all the safety precautions we can. Um, sitting and not taking your mask off and not being close to each other and having those exchanges being distanced um, really help. Uh, and it's not as dangerous as, say, like spitting on each other in a restaurant. So right. um, <laughs> there's a little, there's a different level. And it's also the Royal Room at the Monarch is like 10,000 square feet. It's huge. You can spread out in there. So it's easy yeah. to keep people separated and kind of orderly when they move in and out. Whereas like at Good Company, it's all about intimacy. It's all about closeness. Mm. We have one HVAC vent, you know, <laughs> like the return is like here and then it's pushing all the air here. You know, like it's not the same as the big venues. Like, and I know Utah Symphony 
at a Bravanel Hall, they're seating at 30% right now with uh, a distanced orchestra that is, mo- I think is all strings players, but oh, there is something, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, 30% capacity is, no one's making money on that, right? No, no. We do these things because it's what we do, but then also it does provide a space if it's safe enough for people who are, who will, are willing and, and understand the risk and don't want to put people at a further risk in these spaces to have a, this experience that only like live performance can give. So it's a, I mean, it's a, it's tough. It's definitely, I see both sides of it. It's tricky. And, you know, at Good Company, uh, I mean, a couple things to touch on. We're a nonprofit theater company. We operate with different, well, with specifically Actors Equity, which is a union for actors and stage managers. So we adhere to what they've been putting out for their union members. Um, Excuse me. Additionally, like uh, with Onstage Ogden, they work with different unions as well with through the musicians. And I'll circle back to that. But also Camille and I don't work for Good Company Theater. We don't take a paycheck home. We've paid everyone else. So we all we both have different nine to fives that provide us with income. And we're moving into a different chapter of Good Company where, you know, we will move be employees one day, but that's never been our focus. So to go back to the unions, you look at the theater companies right now that are not in production, or if they are, they're following union guidelines. Um, If you look at the theater companies that aren't following union guidelines, that's on them. That's up to their boards or their board of directors. But I also want to touch on there's systems of dominance or oppression at play at play when it comes to being in theater as an institution. And I believe those systems of dominance have to do exclusively with power, that if you are a theater company that is in production right now and you are paying people X amount of money, you are forcing their hand to audition and participate in shows, which is pow- a power structure on your shoulders that you need to reexamine. Tell me more about tell me more about that thought and explore that thought a little bit more with me because you said it so powerfully. I think it can go over the head of us a little bit. Um, just just explore that a little bit more. Well, I mean, we're in a time of a reckoning when it comes to these institutions, when it comes to anything to do with the isms. And when I say isms, we're talking about racism, sexism, heterosexism, faith, faithism. You can go down the line of all of them. There isn't an institution out there that doesn't need to be looking at how that plays into what they do and their organization, and that's trickling down. So part of that for me is when I say these systems of dominance, you have this this hierarchy set up in theater, right? You have the, the producer. You have, then under that, you have the director. Under that, you have the stage manager. Then you go into the designers and then you go into the actors. Actors do the most work. And sure, actors do the most work because they are putting together all of the work of all of the designers or directors involved in the process. So they're some of the most special people (laughs) when it comes to mounting a show, but get the least respect and get the least concern. That's when we get into issues when it comes to the Me Too movement in the theatrical world. That's when we get into big issues 
when it comes to race, huge issues when it comes to appearancism and body diversity, huge issues when we get into stories about how does heterosexism play into casting shows that could be open to any gender. So those are the systems of dominance that I'm talking about. And in particular, in this COVID time, when there is a theater company that doesn't work with unions, but still pays like they are part of a union, it forces a lot of these actors or designers who can't get work because everything else is shut down to put themselves in harm's way to accept that contract because they pay so good. That is a system of dominance. That is, is someone abusing power in this instance. And that's, that's going to be frustrating to watch as you've tried to create this new, as you have created uh, this new space and you've done it in a way that you're trying to, to not have any part of that system. Absolutely. See, see that taking place. Uh, well, and to be, to be quite frank, you know, I have, I still have friends in this industry. I have a, I have a lot of friends in this industry, you know, and you got to do what you got to do, but someone has to be the one to tell you to put a mask on or to shut down a production. And a lot of people don't recognize they have that power that influences a lot of people in their decision-making. You have to be the bad guy sometimes and say, we're closing our doors or you have to wear a mask. It's not about being liked at this point. It's about keeping people alive. Yeah. And you know, I, a, a lot of this goes back to, you know, the fact that we don't have a functioning government. I know in other countries right now, they are paying artists to, to stay home. Uh, and, and if we could do that, right, if we could uh, get a functioning government to uh, pay uh, our businesses to stay home and stay closed, the ones that, uh, then we could already be, you know, I know Europe's already on the second, the, the downside of their second wave and, and we're just in the middle of, of something awful. And because we haven't been able to do that. And, and it really forces these businesses, private businesses to make really hard decisions that they, sh they shouldn't have to make uh, in these really, really trying times. So um, Alicia, Absolutely. you're exactly right. They should be doing the right thing, but at the same time, like the government should be, you know, mm -hmm. making it easier for them to make those decisions. Absolutely. I mean, we got trickle down funds here in Ogden City for local businesses and excluding, you know, conversations about nonprofits. There's already at least three businesses that have shut down on 25th Street. So, I mean, when when you look at, yes, good company, you'll see the other side of this. But we also recognize that if the economy is when the economy bounces back, it's not going to be until this time next year, which is going to put us off financially for a whole nother year into like 2022, because it goes into like us applying for grants. How are grants funded? How are they gonna, you know, there's so many people that, are, that go out for those grants. And then also people invest in the arts differently. It's not the first thing that they go out and spend money on. And we recognize that, which is also why we've kept our ticket price at $20 to keep it more affordable. But $20 has to go a long ways sometimes. And we're going to be the last in line when they're like, am I going to spend my $20 on this or going to see a 90 minute show? So trickle down for us is, is it's going to be interesting for the next two years when it comes to the, the performing arts world. 
Well, and then it, I mean, and then all of this assumes that the public is just going to instantly go back to spending and doing things the way we used to do things before the pandemic, which just isn't true. We can't predict that. You know, there may be just this period where maybe people don't want to go to theater anymore. Maybe they, maybe they're just, you know, and that, that happens. And that's something we're going to have to really deal with and adapt to. And we're lucky enough to be small enough. Like Alicia said, we don't have big staffs, like a staff full of people we have to support. Um, And so we were able to really slim down and just be completely almost dormant that in a way that like your, your business can't, I'm sure you can't, you can't consider that. And, and it's just, yeah, it's been, it's really tricky. Like Alicia said. (laughs) It, It is really tricky. And, but, you know, I appreciate all of the work that you have done. Um, I know that your work in Ogden community extends uh, farther, further than uh, your work with Good Company Theater. Uh, and and really briefly tell me, uh, Camille, what else you're involved with in Ogden? And then Alicia, um, uh, what, what sort of things you're also doing here in our, our community? Well, like I said, I I work as the marketing and box office manager for Onstage Ogden, which uh, used to be called the Ogden Symphony Ballet Association. It is a 70-year-old classical performance presenter. So we bring the Utah Symphony to Ogden and also other national touring classical music and dance companies. And then I also serve on the Ogden City Arts Advisory Committee uh, and I've been there for a year now and, uh, you know, just kicking it around Ogden is also what I do sometimes. Alicia, tell us what you're, what you're doing as well. Um, I love community involvement. I sit on the AHA board for the College of Lindquist. Uh, <laughs> well, let me get that right. Uh, up at the college, Lindquist the Lindquist College, college of, of Arts. Uh, up at Weber State University. I serve on that advisory committee. Uh, Then I also serve on the board for the Inclusion Center for Community and Justice, which is a social justice organization based in Salt Lake, uh, but does programming statewide. I also um, am one of three people that uh, created the Ogden City-based Town Hall Conversations on Race that we hold We try to hold uh, annually, but things are a little different now. And so we are trying to find our new footing with that. Uh, I also am one of a few people that sit on a uh, police reform coalition for Ogden City. And I am an honorary commander for the 75th Comptroller Squad at Hill Air Force Base. So you're doing, I mean, just a few things, just like, you know, you got, you got, you got your hand doing a little bit here in the community. <laughs> just a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, Alicia is actually in those meetings with, um, that have been happening with Chief Watt and Mara Caldwell that we are going to follow up with. We're going to have her back on to talk about those. They've been on pause at the end of the year, uh, but we have been told that they are going to happen again um, because we've had, we had uh, Susie and Miss Betty on uh, before talking about the progress that that uh, 
those involved in that community in that coalition are trying to make and, and advance that advance that ball here in Ogden. And Alicia is a, a big, big part of that. So we're going to have her back on for that. But I want to thank you guys so much. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I learned a lot about theater and the arts and uh, everything that you guys are doing here in Ogden. So get out there and support good company theater. Yeah. Thanks again so much. And that's it for the show today. Again, special thanks to Alicia and Camille for coming on the pod and sharing those experiences with us today. And don't forget to rate and subscribe to the show. Come on, go ahead, smash that subscribe button. And then while you're at it, go give us a five-star rating uh, because that kind of helps the show grow. And, and we're doing this to reach a few more ears because we think uh, we may be able to make a small difference in our community. So share the show with somebody that you care about. Another thanks to Decker Yazi for our artwork and August the Great for our theme music. Thanks for listening and tuning back in. We had a little break there for Thanksgiving, but we're going to be back on our weekly basis. So we'll see you next week. Community Spread is a Deep State Media production. It's produced by me, Kevin Lundell, and directed and edited by Dan Martinez. 